Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by. Hi, I'm Scott Hahn, and I'd like to invite you personally to join me and Breadbox Media on August 24th in New Oxford, Pennsylvania. For a day of spiritual renewal, I'll be presenting three talks, one on St. Joseph, one on the Sacrament of Matrimony, and another one on the Holy Eucharist. Learn more and register at breadboxmedia.com forward slash PA conference. I hope to see you there. Introducing the redesigned CatholicSingles.com, featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith, not just a profile picture. For the past 20 years, faithful Catholics have used CatholicSingles.com, and the reimagined CatholicSingles.com website is ready to help single Catholics take the next step in sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics. Remember, CatholicSingles.com, for faith, fellowship, and love. This is Charles Coughlin on BreadboxMedia.com. I'm setting the record straight again about the history of our glorious Catholic Church. Today we're talking about God's beauty, the great creation of beauty that God pours forth, floods the world with. But he floods it through his little images, the great geniuses of our culture who've created the magnificent art, music, literature, architecture dance, all the rest. And all this leads me to conjecture what heaven must be like and why it must be a lot of fun. Just think of who will be there with us. All of the greatest creative geniuses, all of these instruments of God, they are his brushes, they are his violins, they were his earthly voices giving forth his beauty. And you'll see what I have to say about that at the end of this podcast. Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI repeated both as a cardinal and as a Roman pontiff. This quote, Arts and the saints are the greatest apologetics for our faith. Unquote. The Catholic Church of the Counter-Reformation relied on this premise as it unleashed a wave of glorious example of holiness as well as beautiful sacred art in opposition to the ugliness, confusion, betrayal, and loss rampant in that era. Artists, despite their personal obstacles toward sanctification, were recruited to teach, delight, and inspire through their gifts and complement the hallowed lives of Charles Borromeo, Ignatius of Loyola, Philip Neri, Thomas More, Teresa of Avila, who were shining examples of spiritual beauty. Jordan Peterson recently pointed out that their true creative geniuses are fairly rare, the percentage of the population that is truly creative is fairly small. Yet even among those of us who are not abundantly creative, there's a creative spark in each of us that is quite remarkable. No other creature has it. As far as we know, angels don't seem to have it, as far as we know. It's one of the great identifying marks of humanity, one of the primary characteristics of humanity. What's really remarkable, if you look at the history of the world and of all the cultures around the globe at all times, there's one culture that towers above the rest in creating beauty, especially in the arts. And there's something beautiful about the great creations of science, of course, which arise from creativity in great part. That amazing occurrence of this phenomenal edifice of creativity 
this explosion of beauty, occurred in the 2,000 years of the Catholic Church, in what is sometimes called the West, sometimes called Christendom, which I term Catholic doom. But every year of the 2,000 years was not the same. In some, not much was created. In some, a great deal was created. The most rich years of all were probably the years right after the Protestant Reformation. Interesting. There was a great flourishing of the arts in the movement within the church called the Counter-Reformation, the response to the Protestant Reformation. If you will to read a history of that period, you see what the Protestant Reformation meant. It meant a great spiritual desolation and confusion. The Reformation was an age of crisis. A dark and divisive cloud had swept through Europe in the wake of October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther's 95 Theses challenged almost every aspect of the faith. Confusion reigned supreme regarding everything from the sacraments which accompanied human beings from birth to death to the saints who set daily examples in the liturgical calendar. Was Jesus Christ actually present in the Eucharist? Present in the Eucharist. Could the procession of historical Christian heroes assist the living? Was Mary's role in the story of salvation solely that of God-bearer with no lasting influence over the church? Well, we would see. By 1545, Luther was writing against the papacy at Rome, an institution of the devil in which he railed against the Roman pontiff, saying in one of his milder invectives, it was very easy to prove that the Pope is neither the commander or head of Christendom, nor lord of the world above, emperor, councils, and everything, as he lies, blasphemes, curses, and raves in his decretals, to which the hellish Satan drives him. That's a quote from Luther. For the last few minutes, I've been drawing a lot of material from a book that I'm very fond of. Elizabeth Leib's book. The title is How Catholic Art Saved the Faith, which is so colorful and beautifully written and magnificently illustrated. This is the second time I've recommended this book. It's a new book in the last six months, and I've never seen anything quite like it. It's inexpensive in the paperback edition and so gorgeously illustrated, high-quality illustration, and beautifully written. The book How Catholic Art Saved the Faith as a subtitle, The Triumph of Beauty and Truth in Counter-Reformation Arts. The author is Elizabeth Lev. Her name is spelled L-E-V, Lev, and it's a gorgeously illustrated book because it concentrates on the visual arts in showing the great pouring forth sudden prolific springtime that occurred in response to the Reformation. The church unleashed the towering inferno of Michelangelo, fresh from his first Response to the Protestants in the Last Judgment. The 68-year-old Florentine artist was given two more prestigious commissions. The first was to complete the magnificent basilica dedicated to St. Peter, marking the tomb of the Prince of the Apostles. And the second was to paint the Pauline Chapel. The spindly art of the reformers, Protestant artists, was no competition for this man, even this one man. The Pauline Chapel was built for the Pope's personal masses, adoration of the Blessed Sacrament and the Conclave. Let's put it this way. Think of spaces. This was the most Roman Catholic of spaces. In Elizabeth Lev's book, she describes Michelangelo's response, painting the conversion of Saul, the crucifixion of St. Peter, and the roof of the Sistine Chapel.
And in her book, she says this, 50 years after the completion of the Pauline Chapel, the very famous painter, Caravaggio, Caravaggio, was enlisted to compete with the legacy of his Florentine namesake. His real name is Michelangelo Matisse, who had died seven years before he was born. His subjects would be the same as Michelangelo's, the martyrdom of St. Peter and the conversion of Saul. But where Michelangelo had covered great expanses with fresco, Caravaggio had one-third the space and was working in the less prestigious medium of oil, which had been derided by the older master as suitable for women and lazy artists. Let me say a word about why Michelangelo felt that way. A word about fresco. That's a technique of mural painting that is executed upon freshly laid or wet lime plaster. Water is used as a vehicle for the pigment to merge with the plaster powder. And with the setting of the plaster, the painting actually becomes an integral part of the wall. Fresco meaning fresh, and may thus be contrasted with secco mural painting techniques, which are applied to dried plaster to supplement painting in fresco. The fresco technique was employed since antiquity, but is closely associated with Michelangelo. And of course, with Italian Renaissance painting, Caravaggio dared to redesign the images entirely. Whereas Michelangelo painted crowds, Caravaggio painted intimate seclusion. Where Michelangelo had cobalt skies, Caravaggio painted an encroaching darkness, a chiaroscuro. Peter and Paul is depicted in Caravaggio except at the humiliation of sin, error, derision, and persecution, but emerged purified and powerful, ready to navigate the fledgling church into a great journey through centuries, continued by the unbroken line of Peter's successions. Now for a remarkable irony, quite possibly the most profound and lasting consequence of the Protestant Reformation was that it prompted the Catholic Reformation that we call the Counter-Reformation. Actually, it is the Protestant one that is the Counter-Reformation, because the Reformation had been going on in the Church every year since its founding. And what is called the Protestant Reformation was a spin-off of this Reformation. So really, we got the terms backwards. It was the Protestants that were doing a Counter-Reformation. And the Roman Catholic Church was just continuing its lifelong Reformation. At the Council of Trent, the Catholic Church ended simony, that is, the sale of church offices, once again enforced priestly celibacy, and made available official inexpensive Bibles in local languages. Vulgates, they're called. It's often forgotten that Gutenberg was a Catholic, a devout Catholic. And Gutenberg's first book was the Bible. It was published in Latin. It was the Vulgate Bible. It was a Catholic Bible, a complete Bible published decades ahead of Luther's posting of the theses. In short, the Church of Piety permanently replaced the Church of Power. At Trent, the Church also decided to establish a network of seminaries to train men for their local priesthood. So by the 18th century, in most places, the Church was staffed by literate men, well-versed in theology, and whose vocation had been shaped and tested in a formal institutional setting. Thus did the church 
confront the modern world. And thus did the church have a firm intellectual foundation for the creation of the arts. This kind of foundation is necessary for a flourishing of the high arts. So this foundation of organization, intellectual sophistication, is a component as a pedestal for a flourishing of the fine arts in the high arts. Elizabeth Lev's book does concentrate on the period just after the Reformation. The medium of her book is the page, so she can display photographs of sculptures and magnificent reproductions of great graphic masterworks. It's what you can bring forward on the printed page. The medium of my podcast is sound. So I want to explore some of the other great art that arose at any point through the 2,000-year history of the church. Let's, let's look at a few morsels of delicious writing. from. Why don't we listen to a little bit of the writings of Hildegard von Bingen. Hildegard of Bingen. She lived earlier in the 1100s. You know what she said about the Holy Spirit? She referred to the Holy Spirit as with the pronoun she, which I've learned from linguistic scholars is used in Genesis in referring to the Holy Spirit. Remember, we've created man in our own image. Male and female, we've created him. So speaking of the Holy Spirit as caritas, or grace, a world soul, Hildegard wrote these beautiful lines. She is divine wisdom. She watches over all people and all things in heaven and on earth being of such radiance and brightness that for the measureless splendor that shines in her, you cannot gaze on her face or on the garments she wears. For she is awesome in terror as the thunderer's lightning and gentle in goodness as the sunshine. Hence, in her terror and her gentleness, she is incomprehensible to mortals because of the dread radiance of divinity in her face and the brightness that dwells in her as the robe of her beauty. She is like the sun, which none can contemplate in its blazing face or in the glorious garment of its rays, for she is with all and in all, and of beauty so great in her mystery that no one could know how sweetly she bears with the people and with what unfathomable mercy she spares them. Just listen to that, friends, with the passion and beauty conveyed in her writings. Here's another passage from that same work, the Holy Spirit, this Caritas. I am the supreme and fiery force who kindles every living spark as I circle the whirling sphere with my upper wings. Rightly I ordained it. And I am the fiery light of the divine essence. I flame above the beauty of the fields. I shine in the waters. I burn in the sun, the moon, and the stars. And with the airy wind I quicken all things, vitally by an unseen, all-sustaining life. For the air is alive and the verdure and the flowers. The waters flow as if they lived. The sun, too, lives in its light. And when the moon wanes, it is rekindled in the light of the sun. 
as if it lived anew. Even the stars glisten in their light, as if alive. Now let's move forward 700 years to Gerard Manley Hopkins, the Celtic or Irish Jesuit who wrote such magnificent poetry. Sometimes when asked to say a blessing before meals, I recite this. It's perfect for the purpose. Here it is. Pied beauty. Glory be to God for dappled things, for skies of couple color as a brinded cow, for rosemows all in stipple upon trout that swim, fresh fire cold chestnut falls, finches' wings, landscape plotted and pieced, fold, fallow, and plow, and all trades their gear and tackle and trim, all things counter original, spare strange. Whatever is fickle, freckled, who knows how? With swift, slow, sweet, sour, a dazzle dim, he fathers forth, whose beauty is past change. Praise him. And then, of course, I add, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The end of that poem is beautifully surprising, even ironic. The entire poem has been about variety, and then God's attribute of immutability is praised in contrast. He fathers forth whose beauty is past change. By putting together God's changelessness with the vicissitudes of his creation, his separation from creation is emphasized. But at the same time, so is his vast creativity expressed through his people, in particular those few genius humans who are the instruments through which he plays a music of vastly varying creativity. And then if my companions at the table have the kind of sensibility and culture that cherishes this fine poetic art. I want to hear a little bit more of Hopkins' poems. I'll for the twin poem to Pied Beauty. The other poem is God's Grandeur. Here it is. God's Grandeur. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod. And all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, O oh, morning at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world 
broods with warm breast and with ah, bright wings. Another genius with words is Paul Gladell, the French diplomat and poet who lived up into recent decades. In his reflections upon the Apostles' Creed and the fact that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead, Claudel wrote about three fires. The first is the refining fire, the second is the outer fire, and the third is the inner fire. Let me tell you what he said about the refining fire. The purpose of the fire, when it is not purely and simply to obliterate our outward form, is to expand, open, melt, break down, and overcome the form through the yielding of the flesh and the resistance of the spirit, to refine by destroying or separating whatever is irrelevant or unnecessary. This is why God chooses to compare himself to this penetrating an all-powerful element. That's Deuteronomy 4.24. For the Lord your God is a devouring fire. St. Peter too, Peter 3.7. He speaks of the fire that will judge the world by destroying it. These heavens and this earth are destined for the fire on the day of judgment. The second fire is the outer fire. The funeral pyre that the pagans felt compelled to erect for their dead waits us Christians in the next world. And it is our own works that will provide its fuel. The outer fire will conspire with the flame within us to break down and recast that idol which we have substituted for the image of God. That flame will force from us the transparency we denied to the light. And last of all, there's the inner fire. So much for the outer fire, that is the expression of God's terrible love for his creature and his need for him in his original form. Corresponding to that outer fire, however, there is a fire within us. He talked about corresponding to the outer fire. There's a fire within us. He's referring to remorse and painful self-examination. He calls them the children of memory and conscience, which find such perfect expression in the penitential psalms. Their deeds follow them in revelations because they become part of us as in the old adage that habit is second nature and it is precisely the second nature which we must throw off. It is not merely the body but the soul that must be corrected as between the jaws of a vice the sinner finds himself held fast between his beginning and his end between his reason for existence and his personal vocation. So God has graced humanity with his great abundance of genius. The human species has exhibited an extraordinary creativity, especially in those few great geniuses. What if there's part of heaven in which we humans can create, create endlessly, create magnificent, funny, and wonderful things. Perhaps God created us because he enjoys having other creatures who have free will. And he can delight in the free will that we exercise in creating beautiful things, humorous things, delightful things, transcendental beauties. Perhaps in this heaven, God would sit like the father he is, delighting in the creations of his children.
Perhaps one of us would draw something very beautiful and would rush to him in order that he delighted it. God is the ultimate creator, but we're little images of God. Perhaps in our smaller but free-willed creativity that is uniquely ours, we are very like him. Our creativity is the smaller image of his. So this leads me to have my favorite dream of what heaven will be like. No one really knows. We do know that the Mass and the Eucharist is a time when heaven comes down to earth, when we have a little foretaste of heaven. But when you reflect on the freedom, the free will that God granted us, and the individual creativity that he graced us with, perhaps he would want to enjoy witnessing that. Yes, we will sit and adore him. We will witness him and love him. We will be there completely immersed, submerged in the magnificence of God, in the wonder of God. I think so. I like to think there's another part of heaven that is so much fun because we are so uniquely creative. Even the least of us are uniquely creative that what if God likes to sit and enjoy our creativity? He likes to laugh at our creativity. He likes to treasure our creativity. We know we are little images of him. These little images of the creativity of his own. Here on earth, his creative grace has played through us, has spoken through us. We are his instruments. Why wouldn't it be like that sometimes in heaven too? God loves and delights in his children. Here on earth, he has been honored and pleased because what do we do with his gifts? We create Gothic cathedrals. We create magnificent statues. What if there's part of heaven in which we just create things of beauty and joy, in which we create new Gothic cathedrals, paint magnificent paintings, improvise beautiful sacred music, string together words in a wonderfully original way. God made us free, and he made us in his image. He filled us with creativity. We know that heaven is a place because Christ's body is there. Our Holy Mother's body is there. Our bodies will be there, glorified. So it's a place. In that place, we can create beautiful things. It would be fun. It would be a lot of fun. It's my dream of a fun heaven. And I think God would be vastly amused as he enjoys the heavenly works of his children. For BreadBoxMedia.com, I'm Chuck Coughlin, bringing forth the endearing record of Catholic thoughts expressed by Catholic artists. Come again sometime and listen again with me to the thoughts that are growing from Catholic hearts.
Hello, this is international Catholic singer Anna Nuzzo, inviting you to join me and Father Dan Cambra of the Marian Fathers on a select international tour's Divine Mercy pilgrimage to Poland and the Czech Republic. It takes place in September of 2019, and we would love for you to join us. For more information, go to my website, AnnaNuzzo.com. Thank you, and God bless. Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com.